Welcome to Ancient Words, Modern Message. I'm your host, Roger Womble. The past is a mirror, and the more we examine what came before us, the more we can understand where we are heading. Shalom, and thank you for tuning in to this podcast, Ancient Words, Modern Message. I'm your host, Roger Wombold. In facing the enormous challenges posed by the societal and spiritual decline of our day, it is natural to ask the question, what can I do? I am only one person and the task is so great. A man named Hanani was sent by God during a time of monumental crises of all types in the southern kingdom of Israel under the reign of King Ahaz, when he spoke these words recorded in Second Chronicles 16.9. For the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the earth to show himself strong in the behalf of them whose heart is perfect toward him. Though Ahaz did not respond to that challenge, his son Hezekiah did, and the result throughout the southern kingdom of Israel was nothing short of astounding. I invite you to consider the impact of one godly man as you listen to this second in the series, Not Perfect, But Good, Studies in the Life and Reign of King Hezekiah, an episode entitled, the power of one. Well, this study is a little bit different from studies that we have done before in Schmooze News and Views in the sense that this study is all about Old Testament history. Old Testament history, and that would be the history of the Jewish people as recorded in the Old Testament. And even before we get into our study this evening, a question that could quite sensibly be asked is, why should I even be concerned with Old Testament history? Because after all, it's the history of the Jewish people. I'm not Jewish. And it's the history of Jewish people, what happened long, long ago in a faraway place What does that have to do with me? So I want to give you a sense of what the Apostle Paul says about that in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. You don't have the text in front of you, uh, but 1 Corinthians chapter 10, the beginning of the chapter, the Apostle Paul in writing to the church in Corinth is rehearsing the history of the Jewish people at one particular period of time in their history. And that period of time has, happens to be when they were in the wilderness, making their way from Egypt, eventually to the promised land, 40 years after leaving Egypt. And the, the early verses in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, that would be basically the first 10 verses of 1 Corinthians 10, talk about some of the experiences and the history of the Jewish people. And then the apostle turns in verse 11 to address the subject of, so what? What does that mean to us and to you and to me? This is what he says in 1 Corinthians 10, 11. Now, 
All these things, what things is he talking about? Well, the things about the history of the Jewish people that he just talked about. All these things happened unto them, the Jewish people, for examples. And all of these things are written and recorded and studied for our admonition upon whom the end of the ages is come. Now, I believe that we are getting close to the end of the age. I'm not saying how close, but we're getting close to the end of the age. I think most of you, if not all of you, would agree with me. And so Paul says that the things about Israel's history have been written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the age are come. In other words, they're examples to us. We can learn things from their experience that we can apply right now, right here in our lives. He goes on to say this, and it is a verse that many people know, but they don't necessarily connect it to the context. And here is the verse, verse 13. There hath no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not permit you to be tempted above that you are able, but will with the temptation also make the way to escape, that you may be able to bear it. You see, many times people say, what I'm going through right now, no one else has ever experienced. No one has had the same kind of problems that I have. Oh, you don't understand. My experience, my trouble, my difficulty is unique to me. Paul says, no, it isn't. Many other people have been tempted and tried and troubled the way you are being tempted, tried, and troubled. There's no temptation that is unique. All temptation is common to men. The Jewish people have experienced what we've experienced, oh, in slightly different formats and ways, but overall, very similar to us, and we can learn from their mistakes and the good choices that they've made so that when those challenges come to us, we will know how to handle them properly. So it makes sense to study the Old Testament scriptures and the Old Testament history. I hope you're convinced because we're going to do it. And that's what our study is. We are actually considering the life and reign of one of Israel's kings, and that is King Hezekiah. King Hezekiah. And I don't believe I mentioned this before two weeks ago in our first study, but the name of Hezekiah is significant. Uh, His name in Hebrew means Jehovah has strengthened. Jehovah has strengthened. The meaning of the name Hezekiah. You'll remember that after Israel's third king, And that third king was Solomon. Remember, the first king of the Jews was Saul. That didn't go real well. Uh, You'll remember the second king was David, and the third king was Solomon. After that third king, there was a rebellion that was led by a man named Jeroboam, and he led 10 of the 12 tribes to separate 
from the other two tribes, and those ten tribes were settled in the northern part of Israel. The two remaining tribes were settled in the southern part of Israel, and from that time onward, there was not one nation of Israel, but there was a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. Now, of the southern kingdom, there was a total of 20 different kings who reigned from Solomon's son, whose name was Rehoboam, all the way down to the time when the southern kingdom fell at the hands of the Babylonians in 586 BC. But a series of 20 different kings. Hezekiah was the 13th of those 20 kings. And interestingly, though not one of the kings of the northern kingdom is identified as having been good or godly, Quite the opposite. They're all identified as being bad and wicked. But of the 20 kings of the southern kingdom, actually eight of them are described as being good and godly. But among those eight, King Hezekiah is listed as the best of them all. I want to read a, a passage from the parallel account of the life and reign of King Hezekiah. Uh, you will remember uh, that though we are considering the book of Second Chronicles, which is the account of the life and reign of Hezekiah, that there's a parallel account that's in the book of Second Kings. And then also a portion of the book of Isaiah talks about the life and reign of Hezekiah. But in this parallel account in Second Kings chapter 18, 2 Kings chapter 18, we read this description of the reign of King Hezekiah. It says in 2 Kings 18, 5 and 6, He, Hezekiah, trusted in the Lord God of Israel so that after him, after Hezekiah, was none like him among all the kings of Judah. So the rest of the 20 after him nor any that were before him. For he, Hezekiah, clung to the Lord and departed not from following him, but kept his commandments, which the Lord commanded Moses. So clearly, Hezekiah was the best of the good and godly kings, those eight of the southern kingdom. Hezekiah began his reign in 716 BC. You'll see the date on your notes there. Began his reign in 716 BC. That's significant when you realize that six years before that, 722 BC, the northern kingdom of Israel fell at the hands of the Assyrian army. So six years before Hezekiah uh, took the throne of the southern kingdom, the northern kingdom had fallen and essentially was lying in devastation. Uh, we are told in chapter 19 of second, sorry, chapter 29 of Second Chronicles that Hezekiah was just 25 years old when he began to reign, a young man, and he reigned for 29 years. But what is very remarkable is to realize that uh, that King Hezekiah was a very, very different king from his father. His father was King Ahaz, and King Ahaz was one of the most evil kings that the southern kingdom ever had. And yet his son, Hezekiah, became the most godly king 
since David, according to the account. And so that is most remarkable. And he was so different that contrary to his father's policies, he actually led, that is Hezekiah, in such a way that there was a spiritual revival that swept across the whole southern kingdom. And we saw that two weeks ago in the previous chapter. But now, as we pick up our text this evening, 2 Chronicles chapter 30, uh, we begin by seeing that, that one of the many indications of this national spiritual revival uh, that, that was going on under the leadership of King Hezekiah was the restoration of the observance of Passover. Now, you know about the Jewish holiday of Passover, and we read in the text that Passover had not been celebrated by the Jewish people in the southern kingdom or the northern kingdom for quite a period of time. But when this revival swept through the land of the southern kingdom, Passover was once again observed. And uh, we read about that in the first four verses of 2 Chronicles. So take your text there and look at that. 2 Chronicles chapter 30, beginning with verse 1. Hezekiah sent to all Israel and Judah and wrote letters also to Ephraim and Manasseh, two of the tribes of the northern kingdom, that they should come to the house of the Lord, that's the temple, at Jerusalem to keep the Passover to the Lord, the God of Israel. Now, if you would skip down to verse 5, you'll notice at the end of that verse, verse 5, it says this, for they had not kept it, that is Passover, they had not kept it as often as prescribed. The old King James Version says this, they had not kept it for a long time. They had not kept Passover. Now back to verse 2. For the king and his princes and all the assembly in Jerusalem had taken counsel to keep the Passover in the second month. Now, when you read that, you say, wait a second, that doesn't sound quite right. Because you see, in Exodus chapter 12, Leviticus chapter 23, Exodus chapter 12, where God actually talks about the first Passover. That is the Passover in Egypt. Remember, it was the 10th plague in Egypt. And you'll remember that the 10th plague was the death of the firstborn of every household. And God, through Moses, said to the Jewish people, here's what you are to do. You are to take a lamb and make sure that that lamb is perfectly uh, blameless, without a blemish, without a spot. And then... On the 14th day of the month, you are to kill that lamb and take the blood of that lamb and put it over your doorpost. And when I pass through the land to execute the 10th plague, when I see the blood of that lamb, I will pass over your house. And that is the first Passover. But in Exodus 12, God said to the Jewish people, every year from here on in, at this time of the year, you are to Take a lamb, sacrifice the lamb, offer its blood as a sacrificial offering. Ah, yes, but God said in Exodus chapter 12, Leviticus 23, that this is to be done on the first month of the year, on the 14th day of the month. 
But we just read in verse 2, the king and his princes and all the assembly in Jerusalem had taken counsel to keep the Passover in the second month. And you say, what's going on here? Did they just decide that they, they wanted to change it? No. You see, God actually made a provision for that. And in fact, we have to go back to the book of Numbers. The book of Numbers in the Old Testament. And in chapter 9 in the book of Numbers, we read this situation. Israel has been in the wilderness for a year now after leave, leaving Egypt. So it's a year later after the first Passover in Egypt. Now they're in the wilderness. And it's now the first month on the month of Nisan on the Hebrew calendar. And so it is getting ready. It's time to get ready to, to sacrifice the Passover. But there's a problem. There's a group of Jews in the wilderness who have come into contact with a dead body. We don't know exactly how, or why, but they came into contact with a dead body. Therefore, they are ritually unclean, and they cannot observe the Passover if they're ritually unclean. They come to Moses and they say, what are we going to do? We want to do what God told us to do, but we can't. We're ritually unclean, and it's going to take time for us to become ritually clean. What do we do? God, did, or rather Moses, did the smart thing. He asked God, and he said, God, what am I going to tell him? And God said, it's okay. God said, they need to be ritually unclean. So in this situation, you can observe Passover on the second month rather than the first. So we read in verse 2 that they are going to keep the Passover in the southern kingdom in the second month. Why? Verse 3, they could not keep it at that time, that is the first month, because the priests had not consecrated themselves yet in sufficient number, nor had the people assembled in Jerusalem, and the plan seemed right to the king and all the assembly. So this restoration of the observance of Passover is indicative of the, the spiritual revival that's taking place. We read in verses 5 through 10 now that there was a declaration that went all through Israel encouraging everybody in Israel to come to Jerusalem to observe the Passover. Uh, and that is found in verses 5 through 10. And we find that that declaration actually extended all the way up into the northern kingdom, even though the northern kingdom was lying in ruins. Follow as I read verse 5. So they decreed to make a proclamation throughout all Israel from Beersheba to Dan. Normally, when you hear the description of all of Israel, it says Dan to Beersheba. But remember, Beersheba is in the south, Dan is in the north. And the proclamation starts in Jerusalem, which is on the south, and it's now going all the way up to Dan in the north. So it's Beersheba to Dan, that the people should come and keep the Passover to the Lord, the God of Israel at Jerusalem, for they had not kept it for a long time, as often as prescribed. So, Couriers went throughout all Israel and Judah with letters from the king and his princes as the king had commanded. And here's what the letters said. O people of Israel, return to the Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, that he may turn again to the remnant of you who have escaped from the hand of the kings of Assyria. That seems to be directed especially to the northern kingdom. 
Remember, six years before, their kingdom fell at the hands of the kings of Assyria. He goes on to say, verse 7, Do not be like your fathers and your brothers who were faithless to the Lord God of their fathers so that he made them a desolation as you see. Do not now be stiff-necked as your fathers were, but yield yourselves to the Lord. Come to his sanctuary, Jerusalem, the temple, which he has consecrated forever, and serve the Lord your God that his fierce anger may turn away from you. For if you return to the Lord, your brothers and your children will find compassion with their captors and return to this land. I think he's addressing here the northern kingdom. And some of their family members have been carried off into captivity. And he says, that is the proclamation says, it is possible that God will move in the hearts of your captors and return your children to you. For the Lord your God is gracious and merciful and will not turn away his face from you if you return to him. So the couriers, the couriers went from city to city through the country of Ephraim, that's the north, the tribe of Ephraim and Manasseh, and as far as Zebulun. So this declaration of the national Passover extended all the way into the northern kingdom. I stopped halfway through verse 10 because that takes us to the next section. And that is that even though this proclamation went to the north, there were many who did not respond to it in the northern kingdom. In fact, notice the second part of verse 10, that when they heard this proclamation, many of those in the north they laughed the couriers to scorn and mocked them. Frankly, I want to ask the question, do you guys have a better idea? These are guys in the northern kingdom who had experienced destruction at the hands of the Assyrians. Along comes a, a courier who says, come to Jerusalem and seek the mercy and grace of the Lord and he may restore your family. And they laugh and scorn the couriers? There's a name for people like that. Stupid. And so, and so it is. Well, but thankfully we read that they weren't all stupid. Some of them from the northern tribes actually responded. Verse 11. However, some men of Asher, these are different tribes of Israel in the northern kingdom, some men of Asher, of Manasseh, and of Zebulun humbled themselves and came to Jerusalem. The hand of God was also on Judah to give them, the southern kingdom, one heart to do what the king and the princes commanded by the word of the Lord. And many people came together in Jerusalem to keep the Feast of Unleavened Bread, that's another name for Passover, in the second month, not the first, we heard why, in the second month, a very great assembly. They set to work and removed the altars to false gods that were in Jerusalem and all the altars for burning incense to false gods. And they took all of those altars that had been placed there by the father of Hezekiah, wicked King Ahaz, and they threw them into the Kidron Valley. And the result was then uh, that there was this wonderful observance of Passover throughout the land. But the next section, verses 15 through 20, provide for us a remarkable demonstration of the godly leadership of King Hezekiah and God's grace and mercy. But you have to read it carefully. Verse 15, it says, and they slaughtered the Passover lamb on the 14th day of the second month. So far, so good. And then it says, and the priests and the Levites were ashamed 
so that they consecrated themselves and brought burnt offerings into the house of the Lord. Verse 16, flip your page. They took their accustomed posts, the priests and Levites, according to the law of Moses, the man of God, the priests threw the blood of the Passover lamb on the altar of sacrifice, through the blood that they received from the hand of the Levites. You see, you have to recall from Exodus 12 that God said that every year Jewish families would observe the Passover as a family in their homes. God says in Exodus 12, on the 14th day of the first month, you are to take a lamb and bring it into your house and keep it there for four days to make sure it's without blemish or spot. And then you, who's the you? The head of the household. You are to slaughter that lamb and you, the head of the household, you're to put the blood over the doorpost. And in fact, Exodus 12 says, that if there are some other neighbors who are too small to have their own lamb, they're to come into your household, but it's to be a household thing. The Levites were not the ones who were supposed to be slaughtering the lambs, but actually the heads of households. Here it is the Levites. Verse 17, for there were many in the assembly who had not consecrated themselves Therefore, the Levites had to slaughter the Passover lamb for everyone who was not clean to consecrate it to the Lord. Verse 18, a majority of the people, many of them from, here are the northern tribes, Ephraim, Manasseh, Issachar, Zebulon, had not cleansed themselves, yet they ate the Passover otherwise than as prescribed. You see, you've got all these Jews coming from the northern kingdom, and all they ever had was wicked kings and a wicked society. And they've responded to the invitation to come to Jerusalem and observe the Passover, but they don't know all of the details about keeping themselves clean and what they're supposed to do, but they still want to eat the Passover. And so they go ahead and eat the Passover, and in fact, they haven't taken all of the steps that they were supposed to have taken but it's okay because we read in verse 18, their king, godly leader that he was, Hezekiah had prayed for them. For those who wanted to keep the Passover, but didn't quite know how. So they did it the best way they could. And Hezekiah had prayed for them. And we even read the prayer that he prayed. I love the prayer. May the good Lord pardon everyone who sets his heart to seek God the Lord, the God of his fathers, even though not according to the sanctuary's rules of uncleanness. Incidentally, it's very obvious here that Hezekiah was from Arkansas. Are you there? Because he says, the good Lord, may the good Lord pardon everyone. I think it's the only place in the Old Testament where we have the good Lord there. Uh, pardon everyone. So that was his prayer, and that demonstrates the good and godly leadership of Hezekiah and his concern for his people. But here's where we see the grace and the mercy of God. Verse 20, and the Lord heard Hezekiah and healed the people. So even though they didn't follow all the nuances, 
because their heart was such that they just wanted to do what they were supposed to do, even though they didn't understand it all. And Hezekiah prayed for them, and God said, that's okay, I know their hearts. How many times have you heard that the God of the Old Testament is a God of wrath and anger? a set of rules and regulations, and God is just waiting for people to break them so he can fry them. That's not the God who's pictured here. The Lord heard Hezekiah and healed the people. And so there was a great Passover celebration that lasted for a week. And we read about it in verses 21 through 25. In fact, they had so much fun that they stretched it out to two weeks. So notice verse 21. And the people of Israel who were present at Jerusalem kept the feast of unleavened bread seven days with great gladness. And the Levites and the priests praised the Lord day by day, singing with all their might to the Lord. And Hezekiah spoke encouragingly to all the Levites who showed good skill in the service of the Lord. So they ate the food of the festival for seven days, sacrificing peace offerings and giving thanks to the Lord, the God of their fathers. Then the whole assembly agreed together to keep the feast for another seven days. This is so great, let's do it again. So they kept it for another seven days with gladness. And in order to support that additional seven days, King Hezekiah gave the assembly a thousand bulls, 7,000 sheep for offerings. The princes, the leaders of the, of the, the people, gave a thousand bulls, 10,000 sheep, and the priests consecrated themselves in great numbers. The whole assembly of Judah and the priests and the Levites and the whole assembly that came out of Israel and the sojourners who came out of the land of Israel from the north and the sojourners who lived in Judah rejoiced and they lived happily ever after. Well, let's read verses 26 and 27. It seems like that, doesn't it? So there was great joy in Jerusalem. For since the time of Solomon, the son of David, king of Israel, there had been nothing like this in Jerusalem. Then the priests and the Levites arose and blessed the people, and their voice was heard, and their prayer came to his holy habitation in heaven, and they lived happily ever after. Or did they? Or did they? Next generation. Hezekiah's son. A man named Manasseh becomes the king and he goes back to the wicked ways of his grandfather. You see, we're only one generation away from things that we don't even want to think about. You can have a godly king, a godly man like Hezekiah, who, by the way, by all rules and explanations, should have been wicked because his father was wicked. But one man can make a huge difference. But it has to be a man like that for every generation. A man for all seasons. And that's the lesson that I think we learn from Hezekiah. Thanks for listening to Ancient Words, Modern Message. You can expect a new episode every other Monday, so please join us again. Ancient Words, Modern Message is supported by Hebrew Christian Fellowship. To learn more about our ministry or to ask a question, 
contact us at hcfellowship4819 at gmail.com. If you know someone who might be interested in this teaching, please share it with them. And please consider leaving a review of what you've heard on Apple Podcasts. Your input helps us make our program even better and reach new listeners. All you have to do is open up the podcast app on your phone, look for Ancient Words, Modern Message, scroll down until you see Write a Review, and tell us what you think. Ancient Words, Modern Message is produced by Studio D Podcast Production. And I'm your host, Roger Womble, reminding you that the Word of God is living and active. Until next time, showers of blessings on you and those you love.